You hear the you hear the beat in right. Go to Wichita. Far from the suburb of evermore. Uh. I'm gonna work this hard. Uh. Nice. All right. No, 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 Marie. We can't do more than thirty seconds. Oh, sorry. Oh. I think that's. I think that's. I think that's a lie. You cut out the. They don't even know what we're singing. <laughs> if it's me singing it, there's no clue. About it rhymes what that with. Was. It rhymes with the bright. No, lights. don't give any. Don't even give any clue. Dear listeners, if you can figure out what I was just singing, you tell me. <laughs> you get a sticker. That's, get, there we go. Y'all get a sticker. You did it up. All right. Absolutely. Okay, folks, we are here with the Alien Odyssey Part 2. Part 2. Of three, at least. Mm-hmm. Pretty exciting stuff. It's an odyssey. You can't do an odyssey in, like, two episodes. It's an odyssey, <laughs> mother. You can oh, excuse me. <laughs> oh, that damn Jake. it. <laughs> Evidently, we can you can do you can do you can do an Odyssey though in like a hundred odd pages. Well, it's yeah. Yeah, hundred eight with the with the addendum. Okay, we're doing great. This episode, we're picking right back up where John Maloney, who it was pointed out to me by my wife that his name would be much funnier if it was spelled like baloney. Oh my God! My yes, Maloney Katie. has a first name. It's M O L O G N A or last name. So Katie, Katie's taking this seriously, right? Oh yeah, no, Katie takes this podcasting thing very seriously. She definitely doesn't tell people I'm a podcaster with very, very almost audible rolling of the eyes. Anyways, <laughs> let's get into this episode. Jake, roll the tape. <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. This week's episode, Alien Odyssey Part 2. And we're cats. Okay. Nothing, Marie? You didn't like the cat thing? It's cats? (laughs) Trying to be like Forrest. We need a catchphrase. Oh, oh, I didn't get, well, yeah, I forgot, yeah. I think we should just steal theirs. And we're back. And we're back. All right. So first things first, this episode, we actually have to give a huge shout out to Studio Headphones, who were generous enough to send us both a pair of some really, really great, really great headphones, honestly. Marie, how do you like them? I'm loving them. First of all, they're very effective and very, very comfortable. Yeah, they are amazingly comfortable. So Studio sent us both pairs of the Regent Black which are wireless on your headphones. These things seriously last. Like I, I charge them on the weekend and then I don't need to charge them all week at work. I wear them constantly at work. Pretty much. Uh, they're on all the time. They connected immediately to my phone. They're, they're super great headphones. I highly suggest if you like headphones, if you like music, you like listening to podcasts, whatever that you should totally check out the studio regents and anything else that they have. Cause it's, it's pretty great. And the wireless, too. I cannot tell you how many times I have either taken out everything on my desk or destroyed the computer because of said wire, of just getting up or moving something and I yank it and everything goes off with it. Wireless. Yeah, the wireless part is pretty, pretty great. So pretty pretty good. (laughs) Pretty amazing. Okay. Well, thank you. We love them. We absolutely love them. Please go out, buy a pair of studio headphones. They are really, really great stuff. 
and yeah, just enjoy them. And if you like them, please give us a shout out and uh, and and we'll let us know. Send you a let sticker. Us know what you love, we will Absolutely. send you stickers. All right. So last episode, and stickers aside, okay. So last episode, we followed the beginning stories of John Maloney, spelled like spelled not like Maloney. He no, his his origin story. His origin story. So if you don't recall, or you know, go back and listen to the first episode, but. Mr. Maloney was a member of the OSS. He uh, was very active during World War II as an intelligence agent, it appears. And then him and his wife, Virginia, and his wife, Virginia, was a uh, a pilot in World War II. Not a fighter pilot, but a transit pilot for... Could fly everything except for helicopters. Right. Everything right? but helicopters, which is pretty amazing at the time yeah. for anyone, but even more amazing for a woman. Yeah. And they had they had just had their... First close call with a UFO by a family friend who worked in the newsroom with John in Florida. Mm -hmm. And then they had uh, he had decided to travel to NICAP's headquarters in in Washington, D.C. And that's where we left it off last time. Check in just to say, how do you do? Right. So NICAP, for those that don't know, is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. It was founded in the kind of the late 1950s. So uh, 1956, it was originally founded by Thomas Townsend Brown with a board of governors, including uh, Donald Kehoe, who was a major in the U.S. Marine Corps, and uh, Rear Admiral Delmar S. Farney uh, of the U.S. Navy. So these this was the first really and in in some ways, maybe even the last really like concerted effort between former military uh, scientists mm-hmm. and investigative reporters and just the general public to become involved in the UFO question. Yeah. I would say the, like the biggest public facing that involved government officials, right. That were so yeah. that was on the up and up and transparent. Absolutely. Now NICAP had a very, NICAP has a very interesting history. It's not around really anymore in any significant form. It, went officially defunct in the 80s, but really was kind of limping along from around 1967, somewhere around there. Now, the organization itself was originally there with these kind of, you know, kind of loose organization of people around the country. It started out with around 5,000 people at the end of its first couple of years. And then with people such as Kehoe and Farney becoming involved and really significant government attention given to the UFO question with Kehoe giving speeches and Farney also giving speeches on the importance of the study of UFOs for national security. Mm-hmm. It, it Its membership just exploded to around 14,000 people at its maximum, Man. which for a civilian UFO organization is yeah. tremendous. Is yeah. it's that's that's just a huge number of people. And says something about sort of again like the transparency and the intent of the organization that it has again it has military, it has government ties, but there's nothing nefarious or or at least it's not geared towards that, right? It's not like oh yeah, this is all this they're all shills for the CIA type of thing. It was very front facing and it was very earnest in in trying to understand what was going on. 
Right. Maybe the last time it was really that earnest, to be completely honest. Agreed. So, so again, NICAP founded in 1956 by Thomas Townsend Brown, who was the leader of NICAP for about a year. And then he proved to be so terrible at finances that they actually, the, the rest of the board told him to step down. And so, and that's kind of the, that's kind of the common theme for NICAP and for all other UFO organizations to the modern day is they do okay until it turns out that the person in charge doesn't really know how to manage finances. And then the, the board asks them to step down or the group collapses and reforms with an even more long and comical acronym. There's something sort of ironic about that. Like you're basically looking for life on other planets. You're looking for higher contact, but you really couldn't even balance a checkbook. No, it's pretty rough. So it's not a great, not a great. It's not a great look. No, not a great pamphlet, you know, front face. But okay. So Brown steps down in, like I said, 57 and then Farney takes over. Now remember, Delmar S. Farney was a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy. He was in charge of the Navy's guided missile program. He was an extremely well-respected military official. And as such, when he took over this group, it caused a lot of waves. He actually came out in a press conference on January 16, 1957, and formally announced that UFOs were real. They were under intelligent control, but not the control of the Americans or the Soviets. Damn. And you can imagine that caused a, that, that caused a huge shockwave to the public. Yeah, you, you want to ease people into this stuff, especially in the 50s and 60s, right? Yeah, and this guy just came out and said, no, it's, it's completely real. It's yeah, all real. It's all really happening. It's, it's all real. They're all smarter than us. The good news, they're not Soviets, right? They're not the Ruskies. Bad news, they're not us. Yeah. Now, Brown took over in January of 57, by April of 57, he had resigned. <laughs> the reason that he had resigned was both that his his wife was very seriously ill, but also his his reputation was being besmirched, basically, in the military. Right. You know, he could he could he could feel people kind of snickering at him, you know, in the shadows or whatever behind his back. So he resigns in April 57. So he was there for hot minute. I mean, four months, yeah. like like maybe four months total if he started in January and ended at the end of April. Enough to have that press conference and that was about it. Basically. He didn't even, he didn't even get to balance the checkbook, man. No, no, not even long yeah. enough to, to lead them to financial ruin. So then uh, Den- then comes along, comes along who we are going to refer to as uh, Major Kehoe, mm-hmm. Donald Kehoe, again of the U.S. Marine Corps. He becomes NICAP's direct, director in 1957 after Farney resigns. He begins their monthly newsletter and also uh, brings in a couple of more people onto the board, including uh, Roscoe H. Hillencoder, who was uh, U.S. Navy director of Central Intelligence and the first head of the Central Intelligence Agency. Hmm. Okay. Also brought on General Albert Cody Wedemeyer. Of the U.S. Uh, the U.S. military. So again, these are very serious people. Yeah, these are these are very very real smart people who are yeah interested in these in these different things. Now, what ends up happening then is at the end of '58, NICAP's at that five thousand member level. He uh, then, of course, leads it to financial collapse. 
<laughs> and um and basically yeah not not super great Mm-mm-mm. right the irs yeah, did go the, after uh, him. that was a little bit later yeah irs went after him right spoiler alert mm, okay so Sorry. now we're going spoiler into the 1960s alert. here okay now 1960s are when maloney first gets involved maloney gets involved with an icap in 1966 he goes down to the main office and meets with Richard H. Hall, who was a pub, was a writer publishing with NICAP. He published the UFO evidence, published a couple of other things, but was, again, putting out interesting and pretty good documents on the UFO question. So Maloney meets uh, Richard Hall. He then is introduced to Kehoe. And Kehoe basically, after finding out about both his wife's military service Maloney's military service, and then also his time as an investigative reporter, asks him to come on board at NICAP as the, as far as I can tell, as the chief investigator, the head of the New Hampshire chapter. Yes, but also, too, just as a point, when you say reported out, Richard Hall reported out, he reported out the findings, the UFO findings to Congress, not just to the general public, but to... No, yeah. so that, <laughs> so that's what we're gonna oh, get to now, dude. Okay. All right, again, sorry. No, it's fine. All like, it's all good. <sighs> it's all good. Woo. So the yeah. so as Marie said, that document, the UFO evidence, was actually given to all of Congress in 1964. I mean, how incendiary could that have been? Like, that's sort of that's a, sort of a big deal, I would assume. Well, here's the thing: it was taken so seriously by Congress that they set up what would later become known as the Condon Committee, but at the time was known as the, as the... Thank God it's not the Ruskies. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sorry, no. The Scientific Study of Unidentified Flying Objects report, or committee, okay? Mm-hmm. This document is completely infamous in UFO circles. It is either considered the thing that put the first bullet or put the final nail in the coffin of UFOs as a actual phenomena worthy of investigation, or it shows the inner workings of the government pulling down a true scientific study. Hmm. Or you're someplace in the middle. Hmm. <laughs> but if you're on the internet, it's one of those two viewpoints and you're fighting to the death. But I mean, like, if you look at the stuff that Congress will read and look at subsequently, you know, it takes a lot to kill something. It does. In a lot of ways. It absolutely you know? does. Here's the entertain a lot of things. So here's kind of the way that this all came about was 47. The government had Project Sign, which then became Project Grudge and then eventually Project Blue Book, which I'm sure all of our listeners have heard at least a little bit about. And we should do a, a series on Project Blue Book. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Now, Project Blue Book was has become known and considered to be one of those first efforts by the government to kind of push under the rug, really, you know, collect the data, collect the evidence of these cases under the disguise of saying that this is a this is something we're taking seriously, but then actually only put out the worst cases and hide all the really good ones for their own analysis, which is something which is something that is still to this day uh, considered a very, very real threat to the UFO community. Not necessarily anymore from government sources, but from wealthy, eccentric financiers. 
of space yeah. projects. Yeah, so. people with vested with vested interests in collecting knowledge for whatever gains they see fit outside of the government. So, what eventually happened was this this potential cover up led to a whole you know whole blow up. Uh, people were mad that the government would waste money on this. People were senators, congressmen were upset that these things weren't actually getting the kind of look that they thought that it deserved. And so what actually happened was at a congressional hearing on April 5th, 1966, the Air Force heard from a couple of different people. So the Air Force Secretary came in, Harold Brown, who defended the uh, the committee that they had previously done, but then asked for, well, we need to do more. We need to study further. J. Allen Hynek, of course, was there because he is the man. Mm-hmm. And he specifically asked for a civilian panel of physical and social scientists, something that at that point had not really been done yet of civilian scientists. And to this day has not really been done. And so the air force then came out and said officially, well, you know what? We're looking for a university to do this study. Mm -hmm. We are looking for these people. We're going to fund you with $500,000 to study the UFO cases that come in to you. And then come up with a final analysis. And the person they ended up deciding to do this with was Edward Condon, a physicist at the University of Colorado. Ooh, buffs. Okay. Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> Boulder, though. I mean, come on. That's I heralding from Boulder. I, I can take some some bragging rights on the fact that the University of Colorado garnered this. Yeah, it's it's really cool. It's super cool. Now I would have had no idea about it, even though because I was drunk most of the time, but I was there. But still, not teasing. Keep going. October 6th of 1966, the University of Colorado agreed to take on the UFO study with Condon as director. And it it just kind of goes from there. Right now, Robert J. Lowe, assistant dean of of the university's graduate program, uh, came on as the coordinator of the project. And a couple other people became co-principal investigators at that university. Now, Lowe's name is going to become more important because of what is known as the trick memo. Mm -hmm. We're going to get into that towards the end of this. So where Maloney comes in, where Maloney comes into play here is that the University of Colorado is given $500,000 to study UFOs. All these other universities in the country are like, hey, we would love a chunk of that change. Yeah, that's. A lot of money. It's a huge amount of money. Even today, it's a large amount of money. Yeah. (laughs) But really, honestly, that actually is pretty significant back in the day. So he Maloney is basically contacted by Franklin Pierce College in Ringe, New Hampshire, is asked to become their basically their New Hampshire representative of the Condon investigation of this uh, university program to search for UFOs. And so the way that this program worked in New Hampshire, at least, is there were 10 faculty members who had to answer these phones 24 hours a day. (laughs) These phones were connected directly to outside lines that would or rather they basically they were set up so that they would take in UFO reports from the public. The reports that the the faculty undergrads answering. No, these professors were there 24 hours a day. I, so just, they, I just have an image about like work study, like you're signing up for work study and you're like, oh, answering <laughs> phones. I can do that. Not a problem. And, and you're like, wait, what? What's what are we talking about? <laughs> right. 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 
Yeah, so, no, that's that's pretty serious. Woo, that would have been awesome. That would have been like your, <laughs> I would love you would have been like you would have been like, tell me more about I what you saw. Abs- Did you get go out and get a soil sample? The same, Marie. That would be amazing. I graded so many homework pages. And mm-hmm. I could have been investigating UFOs. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's where that's you were again, wrong time, wrong place. Telling my you. Friend. This, so, this has got Cogswell written all over. Oh, just so, you know, so upset. Couple, couple, uh, couple decades too soon. So, as these reports came into the faculty members, they would answer the phone. If they thought that these reports were credible, it would then get forwarded over to Maloney's home phone number, no matter what time of night. And either he or Virginia would answer the phone. And then, if they deemed that the case was good enough, they would then send it over to the head team in Colorado. Wow. That was the way that this was supposed to work. Now, the challenges that started to appear almost, I don't want to say immediately, but quite soon after the program started, were that the best cases that did seem to warrant further investigation fell into a black hole. Hmm. While those cases where someone calls up and is, you know, there's an alien in my sandwich, you know, whatever, those cases Mm -hmm. got attention. Those are the ones that they went out and they just debunked them immediately. And so the team started to believe that there was a cover-up going on. And specifically what occurred was the, the finding of what has become known as the trick memo or the low memo. Mm. So in July of 67, this group started in 66. 67 July, James McDonald, a doctor of uh, physics at the University of Arizona, found out from a committee member about a memo that Lowe had written on August 9th of 1966, where he basically wrote this to some university administrators to say that this, this analysis, this investigation is going to find that UFOs are all bunk. There's nothing to them. (laughs) McDonald found a copy of this memo in the project's open files. And then wrote to Condon basically saying what, what are, what's what? going on. Yeah. <laughs> what's going on? The This led to NICAP pulling all of their work, all their people from the project completely. McDonald left as well. A couple other people left. This, this controversy of the government again seeming to purposefully make the search for UFOs find that there's nothing to them, right? Mm-hmm. This became uh, this became public knowledge in a 1968 issue of Look Magazine in an article called The Flying Saucer Fiasco. Good alliteration. Pretty good one, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the this article, though, was then immediately just covered up, basically, by the release of what became known as the Condon Report. Hmm. The Condon Report's full title was Final Report of the Scientific Study of Unidentified Flying Objects. It was released on November 15th of 68. So this article in Look came out in May of 1968. This came out in November. Mm -hmm. So, and we're talking again before the internet. Yeah. You know, before even like phone calls out of town were simple and you know what I mean? This is this this takes time for information to spread. Mm-hmm. Even in this day, that would still be a pretty, a pretty nimble attempt to 
It's subterfuge. pretty fast. It's yeah. pretty fast. Now, the report of the Condon Committee basically found that... So this is this is from their conclusions and recommendations that Condon wrote himself. So, quote, Our general conclusion is that nothing has come from the study of UFOs in the past 21 years that has added to scientific knowledge. Careful consideration of the record, as it is available to us, leads us to conclude that further extensive study of UFOs probably cannot be justified in the expectation that science will be advanced thereby, end quote. At the same time, he specifically recommends against the creation of a government program to investigate UFO reports. Mm-hmm. He basically says that there's just, there, there's nothing to these things. You just cannot do, you just cannot do any kind of good investigation on the science here because there's so much falsehood already out there. So, question, just for sort of novices out here, which, again, you know, I I almost consider myself one of them. Why, what does the government have to gain by doing this? Right? Like, what is the final end game for a cover-up? Is it that they feel like the American public just cannot, couldn't, couldn't reconcile the idea of aliens being in existence? Is it question of money and research and not being able to, or not wanting to, not wanting to commit to anything like that. I mean, that's to me a big part of this. Cause it's like, if, if there's such a concentrated effort to, to look like we're doing something, but then to, again, to undermine it at every step, why? So, I mean, that's the, that is the $500,000 question. Which they you gave know, to the University of Colorado. Go Buffs. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Go Buffs. Go Buffs. That, that is the main question. You know, so some more conspiracy-minded folks would say that they were mm-hmm. doing this to cover up the crashes at Roswell, the uh, Betty and Barney Hill event that would happen. You know, that, that the government already knew. By this point, the conspiracy yeah. theory would go that but the- they already knew. But then why cover, like, what, what's, what is the gain from it? Like- I agree with you. Like they, if they knew and they were already covering something up, then what was their, what was the reason or what was a potential reason behind it? Were they just concerned that the American public would be too frightened by and this idea mm, or no. So, never, okay. So there's a, yeah. there's a, so there's a couple of different ways. There's a color. There's a couple of different theories mm-hmm. floating around out there. Probably the most, the most extreme of those theories is that, President Eisenhower signed a treaty with the aliens on February 20th of 54 or 21, 20th, like, like at night, basically that oddly specific, but okay. Okay. So it's a, it's a time where he, that's supposedly where he had like, and he was, the president basically disappeared for like a day, like a night and a half or something like, like a whole night. And the press freaked out. And afterwards they came out and just said, Oh, his, one of his teeth fell out. He had to get a replacement put in. What the conspiracy theories believe or conspiracy theorists believe is that actually what happened was Dwight was rushed to meet with the gray aliens who came and said, we have already taken over. It's too late. We win. So all you can do either is let us, let us abduct humans and do our work. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the gray. Sure, it, was with, I, it was, it was with I the Nordics as well, but you know, basically, basically the aliens the came Nords. and said, oh. the aliens came and said, we're here already. 
we're going to probe as many people as we want. And then they kind of went back and forth and were like, well, how long can the probe be? You know, There's negotiation. How... I know. It was there probably was, Camp there was David. Negotiation. There was negotiation. There was negotiation, That's... supposedly. And so the reason then that they cover up these events is because they are trying to keep a they're trying to keep a lid on this whole thing that the government has already sold us all out to the gray aliens, Marie, because frankly, I'm just not sure. Can our holds take what's happening to them and deceit? I'm not sure, Marie. So, so <laughs> if we reel it in a little bit from conspiracy, just because okay. I normally, so my, my no, normal, no, 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 we'll ignore the truth. We're just going to, we're just going to slide past the fact that the great aliens made it a thing with Dwight D. Eisenhower, Marie. Well, so, so okay. here's my only, here's my only caveat or thought about it. I'm not saying it's, you know, I'm not saying it's not plausible. I'm just saying that it doesn't sound like there's much, normally when people do things, governments do things, it's because of a financial incentive. It's because of money, right? I Sure. I don't see, again, so the aliens are going to come down. They're going to, they're going to be like, hey, yo, Ike, we've already got this on lockdown. You just need to sit back and just cover this stuff up because we're going to probe as many people as we want. And we're going to do some crazy stuff to cows that you're going to overlook. But to me, it's like, again, there's no, there's no, there's no real, like, what is, there's no gain. There's no, like, you know, I don't so, see, so I don't see, well, like, there, there's they're a coming out of it with, like, they could have, they could have probably sewn that up data-wise within a few months. They're the gray aliens. They've got this stuff down. Like, they don't want to be, they don't want to be, you know, messing around with Vietnam and this planet that's in a bunch of toil and turmoil and man there's can't get cable reception anywhere and well okay first off i think i think to, right? to respond to your point from the point of view of a uh, of a of someone pro gray alien gator treaty okay. thing right, okay. would be do you care if if you're <laughs> if you're doing tests on lab mice do you care if there's two warring factions of lab mice like no, of course you don't. Who cares? Well, They're but lab then mice. you wouldn't. But then you also wouldn't meet with the the king lab mouse to tell him what's going on. You'd just be like, "We're just doing it, yo." Well, that's we don't so care. That's, we don't care what you have to do to cover up for your so that's, for, that's, for the for your people. That's where it becomes a little bit of back and forth, as the argument might be that we had we had captured an alien, and that's well, why they that's, came down. That's a whole new wrinkle. I didn't yeah. know about. No, it's ridiculous. It believe me, Marie. It just it gets deeper and deeper. We can talk about this for days. You know, I, I my marriage can't take it. We can't do it. So I'm, so, I'm the, sorry. Oh, so, Katie, I know. I'm sorry, girl. I'm sorry. <laughs> but so the, I think I think from a realistic point of view, let's say, or from a from a more or less centrist point of view, we're going for the centrist. Sure, so the centrist. Oh yeah, no, this is the centrist point compared to the gray aliens did a treaty with us. Hey, that's. I'm not saying it didn't happen, Chris. I'm not as dismissive as you are here. <laughs> okay. I'm just, so. I'm just saying. What's the centrist view? All right. The cent- I would say the centrist view would be that what if, okay, even if, even if 1% of those cases are real and we really are seeing UFOs, the pragmatic point of view from the government's perspective, in my opinion, would be, well, if that's true, we need to be the ones investigating it because the last thing we need is of one of a couple of scenarios. A, the population gets access to some 
technology that's so far ahead of our military technology that they can form an, their own government, right? Kind of overthrow mm-hmm. by technology, technological revolution. Mm-hmm. And this is centrist, right? This, this would, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this pretty, I, I think this is honestly, okay, okay, I mean, okay. look at, look okay. at what happens in countries like Venezuela when they find oil, right? Or what, do, what does America do when another country finds oil? You know, it, it's not, I don't think this is so out of the realm of possibility that, you know, it is a very strong economic driver that if there is something like this high technology out there, that if a civilian found it or God forbid a different government, that would be really bad for the United States. Yes. I Okay. Okay. So that's, yeah. that's one, that's one argument. The other argument is from a pragmatic point of view of mm-hmm. government. We don't know what it is. How are we supposed to know where the, you know what I mean? We hardly know where all of our ships are at one time. So, and that's today with computers. Imagine back then when everything had to be done by postcard. Ridiculous. Or punch card, whatever it was. So Postcard, they were mailing it. So in my mind, the most obvious answer is that we we are testing secret stuff. We're testing things like stealth bombers and airplanes and all kinds of other weird stuff. We are probably still testing atomic weaponry and other kinds of ballistic missile technology at the time. And we don't want the public to know. We don't want the Soviets to know. We don't want even our allies necessarily to know. So if there is a group of public of people out there outside of the government's control or direct control, at least who are reporting on these things. And one of them is smart enough to find that there really is something to this and see that, well, this is actually, this seems more like a missile testing thing, right? You could locate our missile sites. You could locate our Mm -hmm. government facilities. Uh, You could, you know, all kinds of different things. So again, it just behooves, even if there is the threat of aliens being out there, from my mind, the government's perspective would be, listen, we don't know. And, but that either way, that's something that we would want to do and not have the public do. Right. But regardless, the worst thing for us right now is having the government, the, having the public sniff around all of our government secrets, especially with at the time, the threat of Soviet spies or the kind of McCarthy style fervor against communists. There's just so much. I think there's so many reasons for the government to do this, you know, that that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with aliens or even necessarily straight away with money, but just more to do with with military control and tactics. Mm-hmm. Which would have to do with money. I ultimately, mean, ultimately, yeah. would ultimately would have to do with money. To do with money, yeah. But or power, whatever. Which you know. Now, regardless of interesting, re- regardless of. Why they did it, its effects were immediate and obvious. The Condon report coming out basically completely destroyed all of the credibility of the UFO question. It led to the basically the dismembering of NICAP. It led to any serious scientist who was involved in searching for UFOs or who might be interested becoming ridiculed. And this this report could always be pulled up and said this proves that there's nothing to this why are you wasting your time why are you wasting our money why are you wasting you know why are you wasting your brain on this silly thing on this on this stupid pursuit so again even if it and the report itself was very even though in the scientific literature it was i don't want to say lampooned because it was given kind of mixed reviews 
But the general view of the Condon report was that it was un, it was non-scientific, basically. That it, it started, it seemed to start out with a preconceived notion. And so the argument of it being the nail in the coffin of the UFO question, that was propagated by the media more than it was by the scientific community. Hmm. So the media took the story and ran with it and said, there's nothing UFOs. We did an investigation. It's all fine. Don't even worry about it. And it, that really led to basically a, a near unanimous agreement in the popular mind that, the, that UFOs weren't real. People who saw UFOs were crackpots and those that studied UFOs were even worse. They were taking advantage of crackpots. Mm. There's a little bit of an interesting, interesting, a sad wrinkle to this story. And that's the story of James E. McDonald. Now, as we said earlier, James McDonald was a James McDonald was a physicist, a pretty well-known physicist. Actually, he was born in Duluth, Minnesota, which is, uh, I think, like an hour or two north of where I am now. He got his PhD from Iowa State University. He was uh, a physicist his entire career, but became especially interested in UFOs when he supposedly saw one himself in 54. Now, he was very well known as being the, one of the, one of the most well-known and most well-respected real scientists doing analysis of UFOs at the time. So this is a statement on unidentified objects to the House Committee on Science and Astronautics. And he made a couple of these different kinds of statements to Congress, to uh, to Congress, to the Senate, to, you know, to the public generally and the scientific community at large. He said, quote, the scope of the present statement precludes anything approaching an exhaustive listing of categories of UFO phenomena. Much of what might be made clear at great length will have to be compressed into my remark that the scientific world at large is in for a shock when it becomes aware of the astonishing nature of the UFO phenomena and its bewildering complexity. I make that terse comment well aware that it invites easy ridicule, but intellectual honesty demands that I make clear that my two year study convinces me that in the UFO problem lies scientific and technological questions that will challenge the ability of the world's outstanding scientists to explain as soon as they start examining the facts. End quote. He is, he was like the rock star of the UFO field. Fearless. He's he's the exact kind of person that you want to be yeah. involved in this, where he's yeah. credentialed, he's very smart, he is very careful in his statements and the way that he talks about this question, and never, never kind of jumps the shark to say, Oh, it's it's definitely gray aliens, or it's definitely Nordics, or they're you know, they're taking the cow's guts to make serum for their babies. You know, never said anything wacky or crazy like that, just was kind of you know, to the point, scientific. Well focused on, I don't know what's going on here, but something's happening, and it's weird. It 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 goes against what we know about either our minds or the physical world or whatever. But something weird is happening here. Yeah, was just continuously consistent and outspoken, not just public facing, but to the government, which to me is like that's a pretty big. To your point, like he was credentialed. He was learned, he was consistent, and he didn't he didn't change his mind or anything 
on on his viewpoints with this stuff. No, he was he was a very it was also besides just being kind of a strong leader of the field. He was also a very good. He was just a good public speaker. He was very convincing. And because of that and the way that he looked and kind of the. I don't know, just he doesn't if you look at a picture of him, he looks like a real scientist. <laughs> he does not look like a guy that looks look like for a crackpot. No, and and a lot of a lot of folks at that time didn't. You know, I mean, Jalen Heinick certainly didn't look like a crackpot. Satan Freeman doesn't look like a crackpot. But it's there is a look to UFO investigator. In a world infatuated with comic fandom, comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut! Oh, come on, it wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on CannedAirPodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. If, you get, if, if your job on Facebook says UFO investigator... You says, know. says the co-host and co-host of Mad Scientist Podcast. Marie, we got to look, okay? There's a look to you so, when you get the little out there. All right. So the Condon, the Condon Committee happens mm-hmm. in 1968. And it just, it completely, uh, it, it wrecks his reputation. It wrecks his reputation outside of the UFO field. It, uh, also makes people so in particular there was a there was a bad there was a, a a challenging thing here where he was he was at a committee in front of the congress uh, to give evidence against the development of a supersonic transport plane um, so a supersonic transport plane would just be a plane that could move faster than the speed of sound mm-hmm. he was there and uh, silvio o'conti of massachusetts the congressman um, discredited McDonald based on the fact that he was a UFO researcher. So uh, Conti specifically said, quote, anyone who believes in little green men was, uh, in my opinion, not a credible witness. <laughs> so uh, it completely, again, just further showed how far his star had fallen. And when Conti said that, actually, some of the other committee members laughed at him. So this this guy went from from in front of Congress giving talks about how important it was for us to understand the UFO menace in some ways to, to be in a laughing stock. And so uh, all of this kind of led to a lot of problems with his wife. Um, he had, and, and just overall his, his strong opinion on the UFO question led to him not making a lot of friends in the community. He had a lot of, you know, a lot of enemies and stuff. And so in uh, in 1971, he attempted to commit suicide after his wife, Betsy, asked for a divorce. He uh, attempted suicide first by trying to shoot himself in the head, survived and was blinded. Um, and then the next uh, the next day actually uh, basically shoots himself near a river near his home. With a suicide note. Now, this is important to state because if you get a copy of Alien Odyssey, uh, Maloney 
specifically mentions this event. He says, quote, this is right after the, uh, the Condon committee report, quote, almost at once NICAP began to suffer. The blanket coverage of the Condon report overwhelmed the earlier expose in Look magazine, and the public stopped submitting UFO reports because it feared ridicule. Dr. James McDonald, senior physicist and professor in the Department of Meteorology at the University of Arizona, who had fought bitterly before Congress to establish an honest investigation, was found shot to death outside of a motel in Arizona. A revolver was found near his body. The official verdict was suicide, but those who knew him did not believe he was suicidal. End quote. Now, Maloney here is leaving out a little bit. He's leaving out the initial suicide attempt. He's leaving out that uh, he wrote notes about his suicide and uh, also leaves out the preparations that he had made before he tried to commit suicide. So it's the reason I bring this up is not to discredit Maloney or not to bring up just a sad story but just to show that the besides the fact that the cover of this book is an alien holding her head like she's got a migraine, you can't necessarily trust everything you read in a in a, a self-published alien book. Which has been a hard lesson for me, Maria. It's been hard. She doesn't have a migraine. She's listening to Joni Mitchell. Listening to Joni Mitchell. Okay. So, so that 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 ends the NICAP chapter of Maloney's life and career. Mm-hmm. He, him and his wife, Virginia, continue to investigate UFO reports on their own. He actually does become involved with MUFON, although specifically mentions how he was afraid that Suspect. MUFON. Yeah, he was a little bit afraid of MUFON taking over, uh, being taken over by the FBI or other government agencies like he thought NICAP had been. And frankly, if I was involved in NICAP in the Conant Report, I'd probably be a little bit afraid of that, too, because it kind of happened. And then, um, there's and then, not yeah. a lot to stop it from happening. No, there really isn't. Right. And even to this day, there isn't a lot to stop it besides the fact that, you know, whatever, but okay. So that's for a different episode, people. That, that, that is for a different episode. So him and Virginia kind of now are hanging out. They're in Claremont. They're investigating UFO reports and stuff. It's a couple of cool ones in here. He talks about, but what eventually happens is, his and Virginia's marriage um, fall apart for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It then led to Mr. Maloney living alone, hanging out in Claremont, whatever. And he goes to a garage sale and meets the woman of our dreams. <sighs> Phyllis. What was he looking for at the yard sale? Do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Here's how, here's how I he mean, quotes. was he just walking by it or did he, did he like go to the garage sale on the weekends? I mean, uh, so, okay. So first asking, off, you know? let's just talk. Okay. Mm-hmm. Marie, mm. if you, when, when you come to visit us in Claremont, when you mm-hmm. and, and you mm-hmm. and Paul and the family come to visit us. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yes. Yes. Let's when, talk when that, about that okay. day. When that happens, <laughs> you're going to find yes. out that in Claremont, New Hampshire, and in, in a lot of these towns in New England, there isn't a whole lot to do besides if you don't Yard like outdoor, selling? if you don't, yeah, if you don't like outdoor stuff, it's it's going to antique or junk stores. Yeah, I'm like, all about the it's yard awesome. sale. It's great, but the thing junk is, in New sale. England, because mm-hmm. people don't like to throw stuff away, mm-hmm. it's like 
you go to a yard sale and or not even, they're not even yard sales. They're junk stores. Not even. Okay. They are called antique malls or antique stores, but really most of the stuff is junk. And they're basically like you rent out a booth and you put all your old stuff there and someone will come and try to take it or buy it if they want it. Right. <laughs> that's kind of the idea. So that's kind of what I got the view here about Phyllis. So he says, quote, one day after she was divorced, she being Philip, she did, Phyllis, not Philip. She decided to sell some things at a flea market. When she finished arranging everything on her table, a lady she knew who had a booth across the aisle from her came over and introduced her to the man who had an adjoining booth. I was that man. The first thing Aww. Phyllis said when we were introduced was, oh, we meet again. To the best of my knowledge, I had never seen her before. I was to find out that later that perhaps we had met initially many years before in another lifetime. And so begins the best part of Maloney's life, which is peak, uh, peak Phyllis is what mm, I like to call it. Mm, mm. Okay. So he, him and Phyllis meet. They, it doesn't say how often she used that line. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Like every time. Hello. She could have been using that like at the Fern, you know, the Fern piano bar downtown, you know, when she goes for, for singles mixer night. I don't know. What I like about what I like about the way that he introduces Phyllis is he says that she wasn't interested in UFOs, but clearly she was interested in past life regression of some sort. So like, well, if your opening line is so we meet again, you're either like a super arch villain, right? Meeting your yeah. nemesis, you know, or or you've you've got the you got the past life regression thing working for you. Yeah. So either way, smooth move, Phyllis. Smooth props. So, it's pretty smooth. sweet. That is pretty sweet. So Phyllis grew up in a little bit of background of Phyllis. She grew up in rural New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. um, she had uh, she had uh, eight uh, children in her family, so four boys, four girls. They Phyllis, though, the way that Maloney describes her is she was a uh, she was odd, right? So he says he says this uh, he says this quote. Although she didn't want to be different, she was different. She was mentally different, and she also was physically different. Her veins were tiny so that it was nearly impossible to give her an IV without several attempts each time. And there were many times. Why would you be giving her an IV? Well, Just she was, curiosity. So here's the thing. She was sick. She was pretty sick. He says her internal organs were there, but not always in the same place they would be in other people. Doctors used hmm. to say, why can't she be like everybody else? Little did they know that she had been tampered with right from the beginning and that she continued to be tampered with throughout her life. So clearly, and it's going to come out eventually what Maloney means here, but the, he, I think the astute reader will know. So he, he marries Phyllis. They, they, they fall in love. They get married. He then, she's, a, she's a weird one. She's a little weird and he's a little weird too. Whatever. It's great. It's a beautiful marriage. But eventually what happens weird is makes the world go round. It sure does. They have that initial moment where or that that initial series of nights where she starts talking in her sleep. Mm -hmm. And so eventually that leads to where we are right now in this story, which is she starts giving detailed accounts of past lives that she's lived. She talks about being a she talks about being a girl in Plymouth, Massachusetts, about growing up in Coral Gables, Florida in the early 1900s, uh, being a worker or rather being a water carrier or some kind of servant or something to people working on the pyramids. 
And uh, that's actually where she says that she met John initially was she fell off the pyramid and uh, died. And she died at the feet of a different, another laborer who was John looking down at her and, you know, whatever. (laughs) So they, they start to have these nightly conversations with each other or John to Phyllis. And she doesn't really remember them. But so he starts tape recording them. And after listening back to one of the tapes, they're frightened to hear what sounds to be a different voice on the tape, like a third voice. And the voice says, the voice just says, beware, beware. This is Androd, Androd. That's it. That's all the voice says, supposedly on this tape. They then start regularly getting 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 kind of voices coming through these tapes that aren't Phyllis's voice. They aren't John. They're on John. They are not Phyllis's or John's voice. They are someone else. The first one of these beings eventually says to them that his name is Drendi. D R E N D H I. Now, initially. When the name Androd came up, Phyllis was like, I don't know who that is. I have no idea. When Drendi comes up on the tape, Phyllis comes out and says, well, I've actually been talking to him telepathically for the last couple months. I love this story so much. (laughs) And specifically, he helped her find a kitchen utensil that she had misplaced. And then he was like, you're so silly. How could you misplace your knife or whatever? So... Uh, Drendi then kept kept on kept on coming through to them and gave them information about he's an alien from uh, the planet Pochi, which is uh, which is where all of the spacecraft coming to Earth from Apollo are launched. Apollo being the larger kind of group of planets that Pochi is part of. So the two of the planets were Pochi and Delio, supposedly, and Drendi told them, well, you're going to get you're going to be met by a couple of different aliens. One of them's name is Etron, who would come to look after John specifically. Mm-hmm. And Drendi would be the one to watch over Phyllis in some way. Now, they said then that. Eventually, Phyllis would start to be able to do this outside of the tape recordings. Hmm. And that started happening. Even when Phyllis was awake. Out of nowhere, she would stop dead in her tracks. Her eyes would kind of glaze over and then she would start speaking in a different voice than her own. And that's when John would know or guess that it was Drendi likely taking control of Phyllis. Hmm. Afterwards, she would he would leave. Phyllis would kind of kind of like, you know, uh, come out of the days and maybe yawn or something and then just be like, well, you know, whatever. Not realize that she'd missed any time. Now, is there a medical condition that would also, I mean, again, I don't know. That's so we're going to do an episode at the very end on theories about what's going on here. And because it's an odyssey people, it is an odyssey. It kind of sounds odyssey. to me like it sounds to me like something like a dissociative, I don't know, dissociative, something like that, like an anxiety disorder of some kind of a very complex one. But it's it's very interesting. So. Eventually, Drendi gets comfortable enough in Phyllis's body that he tells them, okay, well, now we're going to send you a younger alien named Dahlia. And Dahlia is going... An intern. 
kind of an intern. Dahlia is going to channel through Phyllis, but she doesn't know how to do any of this yet. So you have to train her. Intern. And so supposedly Dahlia had already been there for two weeks at this point. She specifically was there on Halloween. She was in a in a physical form on Halloween hidden and was sitting on the steps near their house watching them, but uh, didn't want to come out and say hello because of how scary she would appear to them. <laughs> so okay. uh, the way that still he described still with you, he, the way that he describes her is as such, quote, Dolly was about four feet tall and hairless. Her head was large for her body by our standards. She had only three fingers and no thumb. Her arms were longer than ours and hung almost to her knees. Her feet, like her hands, had only three toes and no big toe. Both her hands and feet were webbed. Her nose did not protrude, but consisted of two nostrils, more or less flush with her face. Neither did her ears protrude, but were more like holes in the side of her head. Her eyes were larger than ours. She had few facial muscles, so she could not frown nor smile. We learned later that her internal organs were different from ours, and that her, excre- her excrement consisted of dust. Pills manufactured on Pochi were all Dahlia ate, and these were needed only once every six months. So, really quick question. Yep. Let's say she doesn't have a thumb. She doesn't. So then how can she pick anything up? I don't know. Psychically, I guess. Is it psychically? It's hard. It's hard to understand. Maybe they... If you don't have... Because the thumb is evolutionarily proven, right? That that's the big differentiator. I mean, it's considered a big differentiator, but if you have a... Okay, the thumb is one of those things. All those evolutionary arguments are those kind where it's like, it worked on Earth, so therefore it must be that way everywhere else. I, no, I well, What if you had like a double jointed finger system where one of them could act like a thumb, but, you know, or or what if it wasn't like a thumb? It wasn't sitting like a thumb, but it still acted like a thumb. I, I think there's a lot of different ways that this could work still, Marie. But also, if you can argue that, that Dahlia is, is a future human... Right. I mean, because there is that argument that people put forward as well, that this is actually just us time traveling back. I guess, <laughs> but I, I think, OK, I think you're Chris right. Is I think, dead air. There's- I think I'm sorry. I think that would, I'm, I'm just trying to get my head around it. I think that would maybe rule out the idea that these are future humans. Right. But. Because that's, you kind of need to, I mean, that's my only, like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Fly in the ointment, man. It's like the thumb seems like it's serving everybody, human and not human, pretty, pretty well. Yeah. Because apes do not have it. Sure. They don't have thumbs. Do they have thumbs? No. I think. We're the only, we're the only ones with thumbs, right? I'm not sure, actually. I think think some apes have thumbs. Typing commences. Live checking, ladies and gentlemen. Do yeah, they yeah, accept yeah. them? You know, do no, they do? they do. Yeah, 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 they do. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, lemurs and lorises have an opposable thumb. Nice. Um, yep. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. So, okay. Moving on from the thumb question, which is still <laughs> pertinent, we should keep it in mind. It should just, for sure. Just saying. We're gonna learn a. We're gonna okay. We're we're gonna read a quote here about. Dahlia really first showing up here to them. So, quote, Dahlia made her presence known to us very slowly. She did this by pushing Phyllis out of her body, by stepping out of her own body and into Phyllis's. Phyllis became a free-floating spirit. Initially, uh, initially, Dahlia had very little control of Phyllis's body. 
She did not know how to move Phyllis's head and just stared straight ahead with a blank expression. At first, she made only little noises with no meaning when she tried to use Phyllis's vocal cords. Of course, neither Phyllis nor I knew Dahlia was there, so I had no idea what was wrong when she acted this way. When Phyllis returned to her body and I asked her what had happened and why she was acting as she did, she didn't know what I was talking about. I was concerned about Phyllis's mental stability until it dawned on me that some entity was trying to use her body, but I still didn't know it was Dahlia. I don't understand. Why is it your get out of why is that your get out of mental problems card here? It's not that does not seem like a good one to me. What that it's an alien uh an alien visit visitation just sort of, you know, just swooping in there? Yes. Yes, exactly. It's not a, a stroke? No. So this this kind of so eventually Dahlia learns to do but, different so, kinds of things. So she learns how to I, she learns how to write, she learns how to talk, kind of whatever. Yeah, so it, uh, go it, ahead, Marie. Just, I'm sorry. I got it, that so she said, when did, like, at what point did she communicate that she was there on Halloween? Like, is that long after she... That was, I think that was long after. To... Yeah, yeah, that was long after. It's just, so, okay. Again, like, I don't doubt that there are, that there's something to this. I'm just trying to weed out, to me, what are the things that I clearly get tripped over just hearing about it. Like, these things to me do not I have to reconcile them in some way to make sense, to see the bigger picture of what this story is trying to tell me. And sure, if it is course. like, this doesn't make sense in the least, then I'm good with that as well. Yeah. I've, ha- I've, had, one- I've had some wine and some juice tonight. I'm We're doing good. great. We're good. Okay. Now, around this time, Phyllis and John start to get attacked by more evil or negative entities, I guess you'd say. So uh, one night, Phyllis seems to try to commit suicide by... Uh, by jumping over the porch railing. She walks over to the porch at night at 1 a.m. John follows her out, asks what she's doing. She doesn't say anything. And finally, uh, finally grabs her and pulls her back. And at that point, she kind of, uh, she's fighting against him. And then she kind of comes out of it and goes, what, what happened to me? Oh my goodness, what happened? And supposedly after the fact, she remembers that a being named Atra was calling her over the edge. (laughs) And that's going to become a theme here is it's going to become a theme here with other negative entities trying to take over eventually. Mm-hmm. Now this eventually they get around to asking them why, like why, why Phyllis? Why are you coming for Phyllis? What is important about Phyllis? And in one of her kind of nighttime regression things, one of her nighttime memory things, they get their answer. Mm. And so we're actually going to read this. This is from page 28 from the Alien Odyssey. Me and Marie are going to do some acting here. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to play our, we're going to play our sensible, our sensible uh, roles, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But uh, what this is, is Phyllis is a, Phyllis is a 19 month old child. She's, which I don't like when parents do that. It's too much math. Um, so one, one and a half years old there, uh, she's at the family home in Somerville, Massachusetts, where they lived initially. And they're uh, outside playing her brother, Donald, sister, Carolyn, and then the mother Gladys was taking photos of all the kids. And so uh, Phyllis is there walking around having fun. And then suddenly she's just gone. 
And the mom at first, just because of the strangeness of it, you know, where did, where did that kid go? You know, maybe she's just behind a bush or plane or whatever. And um, eventually, after a little little while, you know, a couple of seconds, I would guess, realizes that the kid is nowhere to be seen and has an initial feeling, that tightness of anxiety in their chest. Freaks out, yeah. And so starts to freak out. And then suddenly, Phyllis reappears. And the mom comes over, hugs her, says, oh, my goodness, you have a, you have a thing of blood on your leg, like on her sock. It's bleeding. I wonder what happened. And just guesses that it was a cut or something stupid, brings her inside, and that's it. And it, it shocked Gladys, her mother, so badly that supposedly she, she told the story over and over again. So here is the disappearance transcript as Maloney puts it down in his book about what happened to her. Okay? Okay. So let's start, Marie. Okay. Okay. I can remember my mother being so frantic. I know she couldn't find me. She looked and looked all over the place. That's strange, she said. I couldn't have gone very far, but they just take you, just lift you up and take you. Who does that? When I was abducted the first time. Yes? Oh, really? It's like you were there and you were gone. But someone abducted you. Do you remember what they looked like? Yeah, I remember. Short. And did they do something to your ankle? Yeah, they did, and I wasn't quite two years old. Well, what did they do? They laid me on this table. Had a little thing more like a scalpel. They didn't hurt me and give me any anesthesia. They just slid it open. Then they had this, it's like a I know it was clean. It was sterile, and they put this thing. I have an opal now. It's about half the size of that opal. And they just made a slit and inserted it into my left ankle. And there above, up above the ankle bone. And then in there, I don't know. My mother said, oh, you poor little sweetheart. You got a scratch on your ankle. But if she'd squeezed it, she'd have squeezed that little thing right out of there. But then they, ta- but then they tracked me. They knew where I was going. They could send messages to me. I received messages through that. That's the first of the sessions. <laughs> and she then recalls the following, quote, But they took me. There were two of them. There were two of these. They had like gray, little gray, grayish colored faces. They live on this Alpha Century. They've had their eye on me for a long time, but they tracked me. They could keep track of me and they could send messages and I do things, you know, they were training me. Well, anyway, they're the ones who have been keeping track of me all this time. And they took me on their spaceship and the door didn't make any noise. It just all of a sudden it was open. It just kind of slid up from that, you know? It was like an overhead door just slid up and they took me down a hallway, but it didn't have any corners or have uh, it didn't have any doorknobs. They just stood there and all of a sudden the door was open, but I could feel that, you know, that one of them had me in his arms as I was just a child and I could feel the thought processes of something op- opening the door. And then the door went down. There was a table there. It was like very sterile operating room type atmosphere. And this one particular one laid me on a like a stretcher. Like you would go into a hospital now in a regular, you know, on earth and regular hospital. They just lay me down there and everything was very nice and clean. And there was a steady hum and it was like anesthesia. It was like, you know, and after a while, that's all there is on your mind. You don't have any feeling of pain. And I knew that they made an incision on my left ankle, just a little bit above the ankle and toward the back of the leg. And they had this, they had these in little containers and they looked like glass 
but I don't know what they were. They could see inside and they had a size that would fit into a little child of a transmitter or receiver. I transmitted some kind of, you know, like, uh, it's like radio waves, and I could tell them where I was, what I was doing. All I had to do was think it, but it went through that. But they put that in there. It was tiny. It was, you know, like, what am I thinking? Okay, morning glory seats. You know how big they are. Well, it was as big as three or four of these if they were all together. It wasn't very big, and it was kind of pale. It was like milk glass, only it was greenish. And I don't know how that broke and how it got out, unless it was the fact that they decided I didn't need it, and they broke it with their mental abilities, you know? So, what she's referring to there is at 62 in 1985, Phyllis is scratching at her ankle, and a piece of, like a broken piece of glass falls out of her, out of a cut on her ankle. And she doesn't really understand what that is. She just throws it away thinking it's glass or whatever. But what you eventually find out is that in Phyllis's mind, it was, it was them training her brain to telepathy, to, to be, perform telepathy, basically. And once her own innate abilities had been sort of, I guess, leveled up, for lack of a better term, to the point that they thought it was good, it would fall out and then she could do it naturally. Now, they then talk about, um, they then talk about the final bit here that I think is actually one of the most frightening. So, Murray, you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go. So, when they, when they put you back, why didn't anyone see the spaceship? They were in a different time and they can slip right into our time. They put me right back in the yard and nobody saw them. And nobody saw me come back. But, you know, it seemed like a long time, but it really wasn't that long. But it was fast the way they took me. They took me in a little, they took me in a little spaceship and took me to the big ship. That's where, that's where the operation took place. They didn't do it in the little ship. But there were several. They were all coming and going. And there were people of all ages. They were bringing people of all ages. I saw other people around there. Other human beings. Did you know any of them? No, I didn't know any of them. Nope. Were there quite a few had these implants there? They were there for different experiments. They weren't all implants. And I know one woman was crying. They took her clothes all off of her and she was crying. I wonder what happened to her. I don't know. She was afraid. I don't know because they took me down this hallway. But I could look down another hallway and I could see people sitting there. This woman was sitting naked. She wasn't crying because she was naked. She was crying because she didn't know what they were going to do to her. And Scary. that's that's where we're going to leave off on Alien Odyssey Part 2. <clears throat> so at this point in their lives, it's like the. I want to say it's like the early 90s, somewhere around there. It's hard to keep track of time in this book because he does not give a lot of time, like references, really. He has a couple, mm -hmm. but it's pretty hard to track. And then from all the information we were able to find, we're able to get a sense of generally what time they're talking about. but. These, these sessions are, these are the parts that make you question, you know, then they make you wonder, is she just making all this up? Is it really happening to her? What is going on? And it's some of the things that she talks about fit the narrative generally of some of these other cases, one, one in particular that I thought was actually very interesting was the dust excrement comment that he makes here. Mm 
Mm-hmm. That's actually it's actually a not often known but often reported fact that in abduction cases, at least to my knowledge, they a lot of the times the ships are described as being almost dirty or seeming like dusty, kind of. <laughs> and it's actually very interesting. It it makes me wonder. Things like that seem to be some kind of interesting confirmation. But again, is that confirmation of a larger kind of, I don't know, social soup that we all live in? Or is it proof mm-hmm. that Phyllis is talking to aliens? I don't really know. I don't know. You know why? That's why it's an odyssey, man. That is why it's an odyssey. All Dude. right, Marie. Woo! Dear right, listeners, listeners, thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you so much for for supporting the show. Seriously, it means so much to us. It's it's so awesome, Marie. Every time we release an episode, we hit the iTunes Top 100 for science now. You know why? Quality. Total I was going to make some alien joke, but I was like, nah, I'm just going to no, wait. No, it's hardcore quality. It's hardcore if you enjoy quality. the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Consider going to iTunes, subscribing, sending us a review on iTunes. Every little bit helps seriously so much. Yes. And every review means the world to us. And we love our listeners. We so love our listeners you. so much. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back in one week with part three of the alien odyssey where John and Phyllis and Dahlia and all the other cast of alien friends travel across the country. It's a musical. <laughs> Could be a musical. It's all right. A musical. I'm all so right. excited for the musical. Good night, Marie. <laughs> Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mad Scientist Pod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.